Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sorry, I'll eat my snack now. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind. Got a great white paper for you later. Uh, but first, I want to talk about um, taxes. Donald Trump's taxes, his sister's taxes. We just had Pulitzer Prizes this week. Uh, the New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize for um, an investigation they did. They won an explanatory Pulitzer rather than an investigatory Pulitzer. But yeah. I feel it was an investigation. I mean, they submitted it as an investigation. So we in the New York Times are in agreement on this. And the Pulitzer Prize nominated <laughs> award committee does they, not agree. I mean, they could we have. Could- they could have gone with the ER billing project we submitted, but mm. maybe next year. If you are year. a Pulitzer judge for 2020 and feel like asking uh, Vox.com reporters how they feel explanatory reporting <laughs> works, I think all of us are available. But anyways. That so, being said. Yes. They, so they, they got old tax returns, not from Donald Trump, which of course is a subject of political controversy, but from his father, Fred Trump. And they were able to use these documents along with other business records to paint a really fascinating portrait of some of the Trump family uh, financial shenanigans over the years. There's a lot to this. There there was just like a lot going on. Um, But I would say the single most striking thing that they found is that in addition to what I would call normal estate planning devices that were used to transfer wealth from Fred Trump to his children uh, without paying estate tax on it. They did something that smacks of illegality. Um, You can't know for sure until you have the case, but it It's the kind of thing that if this were legal, everybody would be doing it all the time and there would be no estate tax collection. And this is – Fred Trump owned buildings, um, mostly in Brooklyn and Queens. And he then set up a company called National Building – County – All-County Building Supply. Trump's kids owned All-County Building Supply. All that All-County Building Supply did was sell building supplies to Fred Trump's buildings. And then Fred Trump's buildings would pay an above-market rate 
price for those building supplies. So in effect, Fred Trump was transferring money to his kids but was not paying gift tax on it because it was being disguised as a business transaction. Now, again, as I say, like – to bring a criminal case, you have to bring a criminal case. You'd have to have a trial, blah, 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 blah. But like, and there are statute of limitations issues. Right. Well, well there, there's that too. But I just mean like we're absent the statute of limitations. You know, you don't know until, until you try it. That being said, if this were allowed, you could just say, oh, I'm not giving you a $50 million gift. I'm buying your socks for $50 million, right? Like that, that, yeah, would, I mean, be, that would be such a – There's also kind of the appearance of illegality stuff, right? Right. Like – Yes, there is no specific crime that the Times report says. I mean, probably also for like defamation reasons, like the the, the report says the Trump family engaged in. But when you have, for example, the president of the United States or, for example, a United States federal judge, there's generally assumed to be a higher ethical standard such that anything you want to avoid anything that carries the appearance of illegality. But so then one of the things that they said in the the Times article is that the statute of limitations on any kind of estate tax fraud would have long since expired. So there was no way to get like a real criminal investigation of this going. But some shrewd people noted that Donald Trump's sister is a federal judge. uh, And she had long since taken senior status, which is like a kind of semi-retirement for federal appellate judges. And she hasn't been actually hearing cases for a couple of years. Uh, But she wasn't fully retired. And so consequently, you could still fire an ethics complaint against her and ask for an inquiry into this. And There was a a news story in The Times. It was done by most of the same reporters who did this original thing, except when they they did their tax story, they like put it on the front page. They did a daily podcast about it. There were lots of fun little like mini explainer videos in the middle for those of us who, you know. It was a whole production. The the Times made a really big deal out of this story. Like they weren't just like, oh, yeah, we did this. Like they thought it It was was a huge deal. It was something where when it dropped, everybody knew it was going to get submitted for a Pulitzer Prize. But then – their follow-up story, which they put on like A19 or something, and it said that right after judicial officials said to the people who made the complaints, like, yep, full speed ahead, we are going to look into this, Trump's sister just suddenly retired. Right. And, like, and that right. killed on, the investigation. On February 1st, they notify one of the complainants that it's being looked into. On February 11th, she resigns. On April 1st, there's an order explaining that the uh, that the investigation can be terminated because she resigned. Yeah. And so this, to me, is like, that deserves to be a big, new, to, the, to whatever extent you think, which clearly the New York Times thought, and I agree, and the Pulitzer Prize Committee also agreed that the original investigation of Trump's taxes was a big deal. The fact that his sister, just like out of the blue, decided to retire to choke off an investigation of this is like, also a big deal, particularly because we have this big fight happening in Congress, which, like, again, everybody agrees is a big deal. And it was, like, frustrating to me, this, like, lacuna that, like, the closest we got to, like, there was no out here. There was no statute of limitations. There was no assertion of executive privilege or I'm going to order the IRS not to cooperate. Like, they had them. There was going to have to be an investigation in which documents would be produced. People would have to look at them and poof. She retired. But there was an out, right? Like, like retiring was the out. Sure. And I think, like, it's in a kind of larger context, it really drives home, like, 
how many outs you have when you're someone who is like wealthy and well off to like make these things disappear. And I thought it was kind of, I know my expertise is not in, you know, judicial ethics inquiries. I was kind of surprised to learn that that is like one way you can kind of choke off. It seems like a bad rule in the larger context that you can end and invest. Like, yes, you have to leave your job, but presumably like someone, you know, you could see someone leaving their job to go to like a prestigious law firm or like there's a lot of like cushions one could land on, could choke off an ethical inquiry like this one and then have a pretty soft landing somewhere else. But, you know, it just drove home to me like how when you're poor, and we'll talk a little bit about this later in the episode, when you're poor and like the IRS wants to investigate you because you're getting an EITC credit, you know, there isn't really like an out. You can't really like say, actually, you know, I'll just stop getting EITC. Like you have to go through the audit, like your refund is going to be held up. When you're rich, it's like, it's kind of amazing that you can just like say, well, I'll just step down from my job and this whole thing is just going to disappear. This is also, this is familiar to kind of federal court watchers because it happened pretty recently when there were sexual harassment complaints made against a Ninth Circuit judge, Mm -hmm. Alex Kaczynski. There was, you know, an official investigation launched. Kaczynski decided to step down. That rendered the investigation moot. Kaczynski is now kind of popping in. He's back in public life without the kind of social sanctions that might have been attached to negative sexual harassment findings. In, in theory, he suffered a sanction by feeling that he had to resign by losing his job and by lying low for a certain amount of time. But that was all like initiated by him and made it a little easier for him to kind of reintegrate back into those social circles. The question is, what is a judicial ethics complaint for, right? When you have police misconduct inquiries that are related to, say, mishandling of evidence or, you know, cops lying on the stand, the really big ones of those can result in the reopening of gajillions of cases, Uh, like including very serious cases that, you know, probably there was no misconduct, but because the officers who were involved also had histories of tampering with evidence, you had to go back and reopen this as well. If that applies to a federal judge, you could see massive amounts of cases getting reopened, you know, not just criminal stuff, but a lot of civil stuff as well. Lots of questions about, okay, does this only apply when the case is overturned, you know, when the case isn't overturned, et cetera. Like, you can understand why you might not want to open that trapdoor. At the same time, the insistence that An ethics complaint is only valid if it's going to affect somebody's future decisions on cases when it's an emphasis of past misconduct seems kind of (laughs) inconsistent with how the judicial system works. Like, you don't – when you are assessed a fine or when you have to pay somebody because you've lost a civil suit, it's not just like – a percentage of future earnings, right? You have to pay money you have earned for a deed done in the past. And so there's definitely some frustration about the way that the judicial branch polices itself, which also the other data point here is Brett Kavanaugh, right? Right. Who there are in theory sexual misconduct complaints filed to his old employer, the D.C. Circuit, because of what happened during his nomination process. But because he's now on the Supreme Court, which sets judicial ethics standards for lesser courts, it's not really, you know, that's kind of assumed to be a dead letter investigation. It's not really that likely that it's going to result in his, his being forced to retire from the Supreme Court 
forward. Right. I think that forward-looking, backward-looking distinction is really interesting and important here. Because I also think of another context, like the jobs that we work in. If there's ever like a query into an ethical violation, one of the things that immediately happens is usually the news outlet will pour over that reporter's previous work and oh, yeah. start looking for, you know, it, and when I think of like the big, like, did they make up sources and other stories? Did they plagiarize in other stories? That essentially what has to happen is you have to get people combing over this entire body of work. It, it and really, it, it's an audit. It's, it's a, absolutely, yes, exactly. Right. So you're it's basically exactly doing like an IRS audit. An audit. And the reason you do that is because a news outlet doesn't want to have, you know, stories with fake names, stories right. that are plagiarized in their kind of body of work. And then you'll see a lot of stories end up with like a note appended, like an editor's note or taken down or those sorts of things. It's pretty interesting. Like you do not see a version of that in the judicial system, when you could make the case, there are a lot of parallels. It's like a big body of work. That body of work is being relied on by other people who are making decisions, like with reporting. Other reporters might be citing the reporting. There are a lot of parallels, but it's a really different system for, like, for ethical investigations than what you have in in journalism. In defense, though, of not really taking the question of Judge Trump Barry's jurisprudence that seriously. I mean, this was obviously, I think, in a good way rather than a bad way. But, like, this was obviously an effort to get information about the president, right? It just mm-hmm. happened to be the case that there was no way to get an inquiry going about President Trump, but he and his sister were in the exact same situation, but she was a judge. So, you know, you, you could you could put the heat on her. I, I just think this is relevant for our understanding of what's going on. I, I think that there has been a um, longstanding question about what is up with Donald Trump and his taxes, right? When most Republicans did not want Donald Trump to win the 2016 primary, most of them maintained that it was bad that he was not releasing his taxes, right? Then as soon as he became the nominee, and particularly when he became president, every single Republican changed their mind on this. And that shows what they think is going on. Right. They think that there is something that is politically damaging to Trump, but not actually serious. Right. So that when they wanted Jeb Bush to beat Trump, they did want this information to come out because it would hurt Trump, which meant helping Jeb. But now that hurting Trump just means helping, you know, whomever, they don't want it to come out because they don't think it's actually, actually that bad. They just think it's potentially damaging. Then on the other side, you have like the most far out Trump conspiracist takes, right? That like these tax returns are going to reveal like his 1099 misc from Vladimir Putin and, you know, and the, and the, and the whole the whole case is going to is going to come out. And, and, you know, of course, there are a million threads to that, right? Like there was a lot of weird Trump back and forths about business deals in Russia over the years and and tax returns would shed some light on that. And in general, much to the dismay of those of us who have, you know, who are in the journalism profession and very worried about going over our skis and who keep saying, let's focus on the things we do know, it does turn out with regard to the Trump-Russia thing that there are – that often the people who are jumping to conclusions end up getting validated. But – but I thought this time story about Fred Trump that – it's weird. I don't want to say that it was underplayed because, like, they just won a Pulitzer Prize for it. <laughs> but I feel like it did not, like, enter the bloodstream in which people understood what this story was saying, right? It, it suggests, a, like, not that, like, there's nothing going on here, but that what's going on here is banal and that it's that Trump 
cheats on his taxes. That like, that's what he's covering up. He's not, he's not like covering up some other thing other than his taxes but and his tax returns. he's covering it up, right? He said during a 2016 presidential debate that not paying taxes would make him smart. Well, sure. But I think but, this but, kind of like gets at like why it might be seen as banal, right? Like he, like, I think there's this view and it's actually enforced by a, a lot of the data that we have. Like when you are rich, like the smart thing you do is hire a lawyer to dodge your mm-hmm. taxes. And this is a like status symbol. Like, look, they came, like the Trumps came up with this scheme. And, and right. you know, I do like right. I agree and with you. Like I think it is a a problem. But at the same time, I think like he has pretty smartly and like tapped into like this idea that like, oh, no, this is just how rich people manager well, manage their I, money. I think, I think he's tapped into an idea that's popular with rich people and popular with the Republican Party. Right. And well, then popular I, with wannabe rich people. Sure, yes. But, but I mean, and then I think that part of there's been a lot of there was drama earlier, like. Democrats said all through 2018, like, we got to get Trump's tax returns, right? And then there's a statute that allowed the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee to, like, tell the IRS to hand over the tax returns. So I would have expected that the day after he was sworn in as chairman, like, he was going to do it. But instead, there was this, like, months of foot dragging and public pressure campaign to, right, like, Right, right. It's get... tactical exhaustion, right? You, like, no, but you don't— But, but I, I think, to, to Sarah's point, right, like, Chairman Neal has not been known over his many years on the Ways and Means Committee as an aggressive advocate of tax enforcement. And part of the issue here is that there has been a long-standing, and this is what we're going to talk about over the break, right? There's been a long-standing political struggle in Washington over tax enforcement and how tax enforcement works. And it's been a tug of war between Republicans and Democrats with some people in the middle. And the mass public has never really been engaged with this topic. There's like a, a journalistic effort going on at ProPublica to sort of bring the mass public to more engagement with this. And the question of Donald Trump, like like Donald Trump is a great focal point for anything in politics. If you want to get people to pay attention to immigrant detention conditions, right? right? Like the Trump link is like a big deal, right? And so by the same token, if we can have a public conversation that's not about rich people dodging taxes, but is about Donald Trump dodging right. taxes, that is a powerful lever to potentially reform how the system works. Especially you, because the, we are dealing in an area, as that Times article indicated, where there's no bright line between like minimizing your taxes by hiring a professional and doing things that are illegal. Like yep. it's not yeah. nobody – it's not like when your accountant is filling out your – tax returns for the year, there's like this double red line that says, caution, you are about to engage in an illegal taxation practice. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay, so let's take a break and let's let's talk about taxes. Taxes. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So yesterday was tax day, and hopefully all of us got around to filing our taxes. Man, um, I filed my taxes super early this year. It's so much better to go through mid-April when it's like, oh, it is that time. But of you know what's again. even better? It's better to be rich. Yeah, uh, because yeah, what we have be been rich. learning, and, and so the thing we want to talk about now is kind of how the IRS is working, what that means for who gets audited. Um, our colleagues over at Today Explained did a really excellent episode where they talked to one of the ProPublica reporters who's been doing all this reporting, who's really been showing that what you've been seeing over the past decade or so, starting under President Obama, not under President Trump, is this slow erosion of funding at the IRS. Um, like, Although, men- to be clear, this is starting under Speaker Boehner. Starting under More Speaker, than starting yeah, so, under President Obama. But also under President Obama's yes. watch. So so what you see happening is, and it all, it all traces back to Obamacare, um, where the IRS was really the one of the main agencies charged with a lot of the enforcement mechanisms in Obamacare. They were charged with enforcing the most crucial, the like most unpopular part of Obamacare, the individual mandate. I remember during the Obamacare debate, there were um, a lot of these rumors during like the death panel summer of 2009, there were rumors that there were going to be armed IRS agents. And they were going, if you didn't have insurance, they were going to like show up at your house. I don't really know what they were going to do after that. But there was a very specific rumor that was circulating. I think I wrote when I was at Newsweek, some like explainer debunking it saying like, no, Obamacare is not going to arm the IRS. Anyways, you saw that really anti-IRS rhetoric hit a fever pitch in early 2000s. You had the scandal around um, allegations that they were more closely auditing conservative groups um, and they're putting them through extra audits. It later was revealed this was just, you know, more auditing of nonprofits to make sure they weren't engaged in political activity. But there was a real political climate that made it very, and led by Speaker Boehner, uh, very easy to cut back on the budget of the IRS. And so you've seen this reduction in budget, fewer people working in audits. And the part that strikes me as especially scandalous is that the auditing has really shifted to focus on low-income Americans. So the people who are, you know, most likely to face an audit are people who are receiving an earned income tax credit. You know, these are Americans who are by definition low income, who are working, and this tax, they're getting this tax credit that is meant to incentivize working. Um, 
they are much more likely to be audited than folks at the very top, where presumably if you're just thinking this through on like a dollar and cents basis as the IRS, you could bring in a lot more revenue by auditing, you know, the bigger companies by finding, rooting out that tax fraud. It's a lot, you get a bigger return, you know, auditing people who have a lot of money versus going after people who are getting EITC. And it seems like it's creating a pretty unfair situation where if you're someone like Trump, if you're wealthy, you you have pretty good odds if you want to engage in tax frauds. Like the odds seem to be in your favor that you might not get caught. Whereas if you are someone who is receiving unearned income tax credit, there is a higher chance that you're going to be asked for documentation that might delay your refund. It seems like a really unfair system that is, you know, showing the constraints of IRS funding right now. I think it's not just a question that that you might not get caught, but that even when you do get caught on the high end, it's treated the same as if you're caught making an error at the low end, right? Right. I, I think there is a common sense situation in which, here, we're going to talk about somebody who is neither an EIGC recipient nor Donald Trump, right? Matthew Iglesias, two years ago, lost some 1099 MISCs in the mail, did not file his taxes correctly, underreported his income, got a letter from the IRS saying, you owe us, blah, blah, blah. I think it happens to a bunch of us who, like, have salaries and also do get some income on the side. Like, it can be really hard to tell when should we submit. Exactly. I I have dribs and drabs of external income. I do not have a, like, small business, quote unquote, in which anybody pays attention to this. That being said, so I get a letter from the IRS. It's like you owe us X dollars in taxes, plus you owe us a fine for having fucked this up. I write the check. I'm like, uh, I can't believe that happened. But it's it's treated as a no harm, no foul situation. Like I, I owe them the money, but it's not like Matt's a criminal, right? I think in a common sense way, if you are a guy who is worth $800 million and you have like a company that has a team of employees and a staff of accountants and lawyers and you hire a fancy law firm to do all this work for you, there is a common sense way in which a like multi-million dollar tax oopsie is not like a mistake in the way that that my stuff is a mistake. But the legal system treats this kind of thing on a par or if anything is softer on you for having a huge team of professionals that does this work for you because it's not even your fault. If you rely on qualified professional advice of other people, you're not personally culpable. You're financially culpable if you get caught. I mean, there's ways to get get away with it. But it's but it's treated as like a kind of paperwork error, which combined with the relative paucity of auditing creates a very strong incentive to be extremely aggressive with what you are doing, right? And and we just, we handle different areas of life in different ways in this regard, right? It's like when you're driving your car, you're not just like not supposed to hit other people. You're supposed to like really, really not hit (laughs) other people, right? Like you're supposed to drive safely. And the way the tax situation is set up, like you are not supposed to pay taxes safely. You were considered, particularly if you're a wealthy person, it would be a sucker's move to, like, try to really make sure you are paying all the taxes you are owed, right? Like, what you, what the, the smart— you'd be the, you'd be the one person on the highway driving this Right. The, the smart play is to come up with, like, the most plausible 
vaguely theoretical, see what you can get away with. And then if it turns out you do get audited and then it turns out that they say you can't get away with selling, you say, ha, fair enough, officer, and and you write the check and, and you get away with it. And that results in a lot less tax revenue than well, we so could have. I, I, I want to kind of tie those two together because I think, Matt, a lot of what you're talking about is honestly a feature or bug of the tax code as it is written in legislation, right? Like mm-hmm. the we're talking about what are the standards for, you know, responsibility for tax fraud or a, a tax discrepancy when you have multiple people working on it? How should we be assessing tax in the criminal code, et cetera, et cetera? Um, because the IRS as an entity has to work within the laws that it's given, like, you could probably come up with some administrative ways without violating the letter of the law that they could try to do some more progressive fines. And then I'm sure you would see the people getting fined challenging it, saying that they're being illegally targeted. Because they have to deal with this, they're working with a situation in which they're not funding themselves through trying to get particularly big fish, which... In fairness, we often do see when you have, you know, law enforcement agencies trying to fund themselves through seizures (laughs) like that also doesn't go super well. Um, But they have a situation in which they know there's a certain amount of wrongdoing that they're not going to get to. This is different from what you see in like a local police department where even if you know that you're never going to eradicate crime, that's still theoretically kind of the goal. It's much more like immigration or for that matter, traffic enforcement in that sense. Like, yeah, there are going to be some people going going over the speed limit that you're not going to get. And so the question is, you know, who do you go after? How are you at the individual IRS auditor level measuring success and getting people to make decisions about who they go after? And so if you have people who don't have the resources to have tax lawyers who are going to fight you every step of the way and who maybe they can't pay everything immediately, but they're at least going to admit to the wrongdoing you know, first thing out, that's how you get a system where it's easier to go after, you know, the incentives are structured to go after the people who have the least ability to fight back. That is maybe like the argument that ProPublica is making is that that's a perverse incentive structure that can be directly tied back to the decision to not give the IRS the flexibility to, you know, spend some more money going after fewer big fish. But you can actually also see a world where the IRS has a lot of money and just decides to go after all of the EITC recipients, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think it's much more, I think we need to be thinking about how decisions get made about who gets targeted in addition to talking about, okay, maybe we just need to resource these people up more, assuming that if they do that, they're going to enforce this in a more progressive way. Well, and I, I think, I mean, both things have happened, right? I mean, there have been legislative moves around funding levels, but also, I mean, there has been explicit political discussion of the targeting and the the original flip in emphasis away from high-end evasion to EITC enforcement happened back when George W. Bush was president. And this was, you know, a pretty explicit directive that was kind of handed down on high. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think to me this ties into a lot of questions about um, priority setting at the FBI in the 21st century to 
uh, guidelines that have been issued in the Justice Department that actually switched midway through Bush as a result of some uh, what they felt was economically damaging fallout of uh, the Enron and Arthur Anderson prosecutions. And you, to, to me, like, this is a really big issue. Like, I think the country has stepped away from financial crimes enforcement in a pretty serious way as a result of, you know, some stuff that's congressional Republicans defunding agencies, some stuff that's the judicial branch uh, making it uh, very challenging to enforce white-collar law. Some of it is anti-terrorism and now I think anti-immigration panic uh, soaking up both like federal law enforcement resources but also just like mind space, right? Like the idea that like if one guy from Mexico is like Rome's free, that we have open borders, but that like if 8 million billionaires underpay their taxes, like we still have a tax code, right? Like it's it's just like a curious thing. Like the reality is nothing is ever perfectly enforced, but there are always questions at any given time of like, what do you have a bee in your bonnet? about. And then there's like social norms, right? Like we have like a real culture in the United States of like bragging about underpaying your taxes. I mean, I know journalists who like talk about how great some particular accountant is because he like finds all this stuff for them. And I said, it's like, you know, I mean, like anyone, you don't need a talented accountant to tell you to claim deductions that you aren't really <laughs> eligible for and then hope you can get away with it. No, but you like, like you, you kind of just want the accountant as like the middle space between you doing right. it. And so it's like that plausible deniability. And I feel like, but I just mean yeah. like these are, I hear this from good yes. people who would not tell me about like how they found out with this amazing way to steal cars and get away <laughs> with it because like it's morally wrong, right? And like, I mean, but this also is like a system of our own making, right? Like this all comes back to like creating a tax code that let that that creates these gray areas that one can take advantage of. Like, you know, the idea of claiming a home office, for example, like it's like a gray area that like I do public speaking, like I can uh-huh. claim that, you know, I don't it, it is set up in a way that encourages like finding Loopholes. Like I, if you read, like um, T.R. Reid came out with a good book a mm-hmm. year or two ago called "The Fine Mess" that um, looks at how international how international tax schemes work. And one of the things he drives home is the complexity of ours. I mean, that is a feature uh, of it. That is a feature that lets you find these like loopholes and ways to like dodge and bring out bring down your overall marginal rate. Um, we could change that. Like one thing we could do is make the tax code. A lot simpler. And that would, you know, mean for someone with EITC, it'd be a lot harder to get caught up in, like, not having the right paperwork, of being, like, short this or that. For people on the high end, it would mean there are just less places to, you know, find these loopholes in the system. But, you know, we did taxes for them in 2017. It wasn't really about simplifying the tax code in any way. Um, But the complexity seems to both benefit the wealthy and disadvantage the low income. But then, right. I, I, I That's would definitely also, a, like it's a it's a concentrated benefit. Right. It, it, diffuse harm problem, which is, you know, one of the classic public policy problems. And the other thing here is that it creates an industry that uh, is going to lobby for that complicated tax, code, which is the other wild thing that, pro, you know, this is the, the uh, ProPublica's like last week came out talking about how there was a bill in Congress that would make it 
illegal for the IRS to provide like free automatic tax filing because the tax preparation industry would be so disadvantaged by this that they were lobbying against it. And, you know, we've also done reporting on how there's TurboTax and et cetera keep lobbying for the continued complexity of the tax code because the more people who can do their own taxes, the worse, the less revenue they get. Like there's definitely a you would have to have a lot of members of Congress A, deciding that it's not that whatever personal benefit they get in the Mm -hmm. complexity of the tax code as wealthy people who have legal expertise at their fingertips is not worth it. And B, that they are willing to harm these particular people who are going to step into their offices in order to help a bunch of people who are not equipped to lobby. Like there's no big EITC tax audit lobby day. Right. Like that's not something where you're where you have anything more than a couple of ProPublica stories and center on budget and policy priorities, white papers that are going to be telling you, hey, maybe the status quo is a bad idea. I want to distinguish between two things, though, here, which, which comes up all the time. One is the complexity of the actual tax code. The other is the complexity of the tax filing process, uh-huh, right? Yeah. Um, because one of the things that in the mix here, right, is that in a normal country, the way you would file taxes is the same way that – like I was telling the story a couple years ago. I underpaid my taxes because I missed some some 1099s in the mail. We're totally right? all going to get audited after the, this episode. The, the IRS caught me because the IRS knows how much this taxes I This is the thing I that owe. drives me bananas is they know how much money I right. am earning. And so the, right. way, it's the, the world's the, biggest merit system. And, and, so, and so the way Japan, many other yes, countries, and it's frequently been proposed is the IRS would just do the thing that it used to catch me having exactly. underpaid my taxes – and would just tell me how much taxes I owe. And you right? could dispute it if you thought they were wrong. But generally, and, like, the government yeah, is good yes, at keeping and, track and, of and, these and, things. And, 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 right, exactly. It would go the other way. Yes. If you were – and I think that that would not only be simpler for people, this would shift the norms. Yes. Because then if you wanted to go make a really aggressive home office – claim, you would have to say, no, IRS, I am choosing to dispute this. I am going to go fill out all the forms myself and go make this claim. You might get away with it, but it's because now, no matter how timid you would like to be, you have to go through all the hoops. It like psychologically, emotionally, in terms of norms, makes it seem like, okay, as long as I'm in here doing this work, like I ought to find the deductions that I can go claim, right? And, and this is the lobbying thing. This is not like the IRS is dumb or nobody knows this or, oh, uh, why are these bureaucrats such dummies? Like the, the reason is like m- many politicians have proposed legislation to have the IRS autocomplete people's forms. This would really take care of the EITC thing because the EITC is very complicated. Right, right. But like, it's not... If you've ever, if you're in voluntary circles, the beginning of every year, there's a big push like, hey, can you like do some training and be a volunteer to help people who qualify for the EITC right. fill out their taxes? Because it's not something that most people can do on their own. And, and the formula is complicated. Like I right now could not explain it to you because it's complicated. That being said, like the IRS could just do it. Right. The, the the complexity stems from the way it phases in and phases out and has to do with how many children you have and yada, yada, yada. Like, like they, they could handle all of that stuff. And then that would leave you, right, if you, if you crush the power of the TurboTax lobby, you have the taxes done automatically. That would leave you with rich people who have inherently complex tax situations because they are running businesses, um, right? In which case, the IRS can't just simply check the box. But then 
that would be the reasonable place to target the bulk of your enforcement, right? You would be saying, look, this is complicated. You're doing it yourself. You're working with lawyers and accountants. But then, like, the IRS would have, like, smart human beings uh, going after that, right? And you would have a much less normalized situation in which middle class people look with pride, beaming pride, and they're like little random deduction scams. And then like rich people are sneaking off with millions of dollars in underpaid taxes. And that I think is like at the center of what's going on with Donald Trump. It is fairly normal to have affluent people in the White House, but we have not since like the old days of like the slave plantation owners had like an actual business operator in the White House. And if scrutiny is put into just like how it is that business operators do their taxes, like I think people would be outraged and would demand Changes. Well, one thing I I think is notable that one of the things in the Trump budget was suggesting increasing the IRS's budget. One thing I would be concerned about there is like where do those resources get deployed? You right. could see a situation where they decide, okay, we're going to audit every EITC recipient because, you know, there's this growing rhetoric around the importance of work and low-income people should work for the benefits that they receive. You see this in Medicaid work requirements. It's a big part of the, you know, critique of EITC is people trying to game the system, trying to get tax credits they don't deserve. So you could see one world where the IRS staffs up and they take on big companies and they do those investigations, which are quite challenging and politically would probably face a lot of blowback from companies who are not thrilled to be audited and would certainly let their congressional delegation know about it. Or, you know, you could use those new resources to set up even more aggressive audits of EITC. And you could see this more politicized version of the IRS that kind of is like where they put their auditing energy could depend a lot on who is in charge and how they're being directed to do Someday that. we I should would... talk about how we should replace the EITC with something better that does not actually put this weight on individuals. Yes. Oh, yeah, that that sounds like a good idea. I was also going to just throw out there that in a period where we had this big law school glut during the recession yes. and there are now a lot of overeducated people with JDs who can't find careers in law, uh, tax law is a notoriously boring, no, mm. but generally fairly lucrative, but like obviously complex enough that people actually need some some preparation in it, area of law. And maybe if we had a situation where there were it was more incentive for companies and businessmen to hire compliance-focused tax attorneys. Mm. People who find tax law otherwise immoral might be incentivized mm. to find jobs that they are actually legally qualified for instead of just having a bunch of JDs. This is like the Daryl Lynn, like AmeriCorps for yeah, no, for this lawyers. Is, yeah, I like this. Interesting. Yeah. I'm All into right. this. So let's let's take a break and then let's talk about let's talk about law oh on the streets. <laughs> Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. 
You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, Dara, what's our what's our paper today? Right. So this is a paper from PNAS, which is the Proceedings in the National Academies of Science, uh, from a bunch of NYU researchers out of the Center for Policing Equity, which is run by Phil Goff. It's a study, a, a w- four waves of surveys of non-white teen boys, uh, mostly black and Latino. Uh, across four high schools in some southern city in the U.S. It does the thing that you see a lot in sociology where it doesn't name the city. It doesn't do the thing you see in a lot of sociology where it's easy to name the city anyway. But like yes. it, it's not – it does not appear to be the case that there that this is super specific to this particular city. And what they did was they asked them every six months for two years from fall of their ninth grade year to spring of their tenth grade year a bunch of questions about whether they'd been stopped by police, like pedestrian stops, not, not stopped in their cars but like just walking through the street kind of stop and frisk kind of stuff, uh, and a bunch of questions about behavior and feelings and that sort of thing. The reason for this is that there's a consensus in the criminology literature that the best thing you can do for crime is to proactively put a bunch of policemen in high crime areas and to make sure that they're being very visible and having a lot of contacts with people who might be more likely to engage in crimes. Uh, And generally, that does tend to bring crime rates down. But People have started to raise questions about how does this work in the other direction? What happens after somebody who has not committed a crime gets stopped by police? And the results of this study validate a theoretical model that some of the kind of juvenile crime research has pointed to, that after somebody who has not done anything delinquent gets – or you know, after somebody gets stopped by police, that increases their psychological distress down the road, which in turn increases future delinquency. The like, kind of fundamental finding here is that having been stopped by police in one wave of the study predicted future delinquent behaviors, and that did not work the other way. Be- having Being more likely to report delinquent behaviors in one phase did not mean you were more likely to get stopped by police. In fact, generally, police were not more likely to stop the people, the boys in the study who reported delinquent behaviors than the boys in the study who didn't. So it's it's a 
big challenge to the idea that we've solved the problem of urban policing, because in addition to these kind of general problems of, okay, what are we doing to, you know, what does the school-to-prison pipeline do to future academic achievement? What are we doing to non-white boys when we label them as criminals? This raises the possibility that proactive policing, as it's generally applied, could actually be increasing crime rates down the road. So I felt, though, that actually John McDonald, Jeffrey Fagan, and Amanda Geller did solve urban policing in their 2016 article, The Effects of Local Police Surges on Crime and Arrests in New York City, in which they found that sending extra police officers to a neighborhood reduced crime there and that stopping people had no incremental crime-reducing impact over and above the impact of sending the people there, right? So basically, they looked at which neighborhoods got a surge in cops. They found that the surge reduced crime. Then they looked in the surges, like who did a lot of stops versus who was lazy. And they found that doing the stops didn't change anything, that it was just being there, right? It can sometimes sound a little bit paradoxical in a weird way. Like there's some good good papers um, by um, Richard Rosenfeld on like the most dopey form of hotspot policing, which is like literally one particular block has had a lot of crime on it. And what if you just send or a an cop? intersection. Right, right. So it's like, what if you just send a cop to that intersection? And like, I was just like, this is, I, DC was doing this for a little while. I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Like they'll just do the crime around the corner. Uh, but they don't. There's not like a hundred percent uh, you know, non-displacement, but like it's it's not nothing either. Um, and it's sort of along the lines, I would say, of like like the security guards you see at the CVS. When if you kind of think about it, it's like, what are those guys really going to do, right? Like nothing. Um, but private companies feel that just putting somebody in the security guard uniform and having them kind of sit there you know, is going to cut down on shoplifting. And it seems like having police officers just out and about, you know, like they're there, they're in their uniforms, people can see them, and they think, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't do any crimes, um, that that reduces crime, and that hassling people um, generates a lot of ill will. But, like, you don't need to hassle people. You could just stand there. Well, I think an interesting thing I'd love to see more research on in the space is, like, what those interactions are like. Because you can imagine, like, very different versions of, like, hey, how's it going on your way to school versus, like, a more confrontational, like, more aggressive, like, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Like, those are those are small. And I, I imagine they're quite challenging to study, but they seem like they would, you know, create very different versions of what might be coded the same in the research of something that is an interaction or a stop could be felt very, very different ways depending on what the actual substance of that interaction is like. If it's like a accusatorial, like you seem to be doing something wrong versus a like you actually know the kids and, you know, you're, you know, wondering about how their sibling is. Like, you could see that kind of, like, version of community policing, or you could see that version of starting from, like, the viewpoint that this person has probably done something wrong. Yeah, there actually is a little bit of such research in the context of in the context of stops in particular. Uh, the, the concept is called procedural justice, that if after a given interaction, you know, somebody is treated with respect, if things are explained to them, if they feel that they, that, like, they're not kind of being coerced into doing things, that they'll come away feeling that, 
even if they were ultimately, you know, given a ticket or whatever, that justice was done, they'll, like, feel good about the interaction. The problem with that is that it's very, very fragile. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to break the legitimate, the perceived legitimacy of law enforcement as an entity. And when we're talking about like teenage boys, I mean, one of the the most depressing stuff about this study is a the research limitations of just how difficult it is to get several hundred ninth and tenth grade boys to continue to participate in studies when like they're not necessarily going to continue to show up to school. Their parents, you know, they can't necessarily get their parents to to return the parental consent forms within two days. The people who were most likely to drop out of the study were the ones who were most likely to report having been stopped by police in the first wave. So, like, there is an argument that this is a kind of conservative study. But also, this this was measuring 14 and 15-year-old boys. Previous studies have shown that the average age of first police stop is 12, um, which is just – it's – it makes it Sorry, really, that's an average for which population? Uh, for non-white boys. Oh, for, okay, great. Uh, who are yeah. disproportionately the most over-policed. Sure. Um, and, you know, that – at a certain point, that really challenges not just what – how we think of the kinds of kids who are likely to be delinquent, you know, the, the subset of kids who are getting stopped, but also if, you know, at 12, you're not necessarily – you can't necessarily decide to hang with a quote unquote good crowd, right? Like if you're if the kids you hang out with from the neighborhood, some of them are already getting stopped, even if you yourself are not getting stopped, that's gonna affect the perceived legitimacy of the police as an institution. And so I think that the kind of the idea of having cops just stand there or having them engage in positive interactions is really hard to you can't wipe the slate clean on this, right? You can't just say tomorrow we'll have the cops stop doing things, not least because uh, you can't control what individual law enforcement officers do. And you there's there's a real, you know, there's a morale problem, which we've gotten to in the podcast before, with having law enforcement officers being told the thing you think is your job is bad. But also it's you can't just have a police officer stand there and not stop boys. And next week the boys are like, ah, this is cool. I don't feel like I've been labeled a criminal anymore. Mm, I don't know. I so okay. I think there's like a lot of stuff going on here, right? But, like, there was a big push. I Who knows which what was going on in this large southern city, right? But, like, in New York, there was a specific push, like a, like a big push to say, we want to have, like, from the top down, like, our new strategy is that we are going to have officers do these random stops, quote-unquote random stops, and, and check and search people. And there was a big push for it. And then crime in New York started to fall a lot after that. So a lot of specific rhetoric and politics was built around the idea that this stop-and-frisk policy was super successful, right, and that the people doing it were like heroes who were saving the city. And then when complaints came and when when moves came first from judges and then from, from Mayor de Blasio to say, OK, we're going to stop doing this stop-and-frisk, there was a lot of – Agitative from from the police, you know, morale, as as you're saying, Dara, political pushback, because people were being told this thing that the previous political leadership right. had told you was heroism, yes. you're now being told is bad and racist, right? Yeah. So that's a specific political history and political context. Now the reality is, is that crime has not risen in New York since they stopped this stop and frisking. It's exactly in line with what my paper would have said, which is that having the police be present is effective, but having them stop people without probable cause is not, right? 
And you can imagine a different city, right? Just like a different thing with like a different politics. And like you're telling the police officers like – Go out there. Like, we're going to, like, get out of the cars, get you out from behind your desks. You're going to walk around, be cops on the beat. You're going to stop crime. And then, like, crime goes down. And you're like, congratulations, police. You did amazing. And we're going to hire more officers. And nobody is out there saying, like, aha, what we really want to do is stop people with no probable cause, right? It's not, like, inherent, I think, to the task of, like, policing or even a police are good mentality that, like, the optimal thing to have police officers do is to just find young black and Latino men who they have no basis for searching and go search them. People react poorly to that for very good reasons. Like what the cops were doing under these stop and frisk policies, it's like it's really bad and like incredibly rude and perceived that way because that's what it is. Like they were literally, like they were telling officers, like you should just, stop people and search them because you don't like the cut of their jib, you know? And like, well, and like, don't do not do that. Like, it's bad. People don't like it. I mean, I think that this has to be, we have to talk about two specific paradigms in which street crime usually gets policed. One of which is the drug trade, which is tied to a lot of street crime, which is like why it's so, there's so much impact in just putting a dude yeah. at an intersection, right? Because if that's a known drug market, it's hard to get the communication around that, hey, we've moved two blocks that away to avoid the cops. And the other is gang policing, where there is a deliberate idea in theories of gang policing of collective punishment, that you want to make it so that everybody feels responsible for one person getting punished and therefore you should be punishing members of the group for being members of the group. It's like it's really hard to talk about it. In a vacuum, of course, it sounds like it's a dumb idea to just pull over some kid who hasn't done anything wrong. But if you think, and you're correct or you're not correct, that this kid has ties to gang members, that they're, you know, that they are at risk of gang involvement and you want to scare them straight, you know, there are lots of things that could lead you to say, yes, I understand that I'm not literally catching a guy in the act, but it's good for his future if I get him Sure. anyway. But I mean, but there was this whole theory and rhetoric that like, well, you were going to find illegal concealed weapons, you were going to, you know, run people against their warrants, stuff like that. And like, you know, that's not crazy. You know, I think the idea that you would have some kind of net positive impact by just sort of taking people who, you know, had the wrong look and and running them through the system. But it like it turns out to not work that well. People really don't like it. Um, I think they have good reason for not liking it. Uh, nobody wants to be stopped by the police for no good reason. Um, it it is done in a racially discriminatory manner. But like, even if it wasn't. Right. Like I I was stopped and frisked by the NYPD one time by, I guess, somebody making a point that they could stop young white kids, too. And like this sucked. I don't know. I wasn't being racially targeted, but like I was just living my life. Um, Nobody wants that. I I like to maintain some some optimism, though, about the fact that like what police officers want to hear from politics is that the work that police officers do is valuable and important. And like I think that that is true. Right. And like is well backed up by all of this stuff. But that, I don't know, violating people's rights is not the valuable and important work that the police officers do. Yet another Reads episode with us not having solved, uh, you know, 
turning around large, complex policy organizations. No, we need IRS guys with, like, badges and stuff like that just wandering we around. We need corporate IRS <laughs> guys. Right, right. Corporate we need, the, accounting we need departments. those armed um, IRS agents we were promised with Obamacare. On specific, yeah. Right, right. Like, in specific accounting firms, policing outside specific accounting firms that are associated with shady tax practices. And stop, it, stop and buy the law firms. And, like, they don't need to do anything. Just, like, right, no, right, I'm looking right. around. Stop your first year, uh, you know, associates at big law. Make sure that they understand that, like, future discrepancies will be a problem for them. Yeah. All right. I like it. All right. That's great. Um, th- thanks, guys. Um, and thanks to all of our uh, listeners out there. I want to let you know uh, we're going to have a, a, a special uh, Weeds coming up on Friday. We're going to have uh, Dave Roberts on with Ezra and Jane uh, talking about the Green New Deal. This has been, I think, much requested uh, in various quarters. Uh, so, you know, looking forward to hearing that as, a, as an audience member. Uh, and the Weeds will return on Friday. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.